following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. of a study that's taken quite a few months as we've looked at the life of David. We've done it quite selectively and continually. I say to you, we're not covering every little incident in David's life. We've jumped from last time, a couple of chapters uh, from where we were the last time around, to chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, just uh, reminding you of a little bit of context to what was has happened, you might think, after the terrible, tragic thing of Absalom's revolt in chapter 18, that nothing could be worse than David losing his handsome, charismatic older son who probably would have been king. And David bewailed that, you remember, last time. But it wasn't the end of of great events. There were interesting things happening in the chapters in between, and I'll mention a few of them as I go along today. But I'm going to read first from 2 Samuel 22, the first 20 verses, not the entire chapter. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, And the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, and the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven as the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. And then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord and at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me and drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. 
They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This is God's holy word. If I would somehow poll each of you present in both services of our church today, I wonder if I could get an answer to a question that would be a different answer probably for almost everybody. That would be the question of what is your favorite worship hymn? The pollsters tell us that Amazing Grace has won that for many, many years now, but it's constantly changing. There are other hymns that people regard as their absolute favorites, and we sang one just a few minutes ago with Rock of Ages. That may have lost a little favor, although it's been revived in a new tune, which you know we sing two tunes for that on and off in this church. It remains a precious hymn, a favorite, I would say, in the top 15 or 20 at least with many people. Well, I'm putting before you today that I believe David, the servant of God, had a favorite hymn, and it's before us for consideration. We're nearing the end of quite a few months of studying David, who is called the man after God's own heart. The king of Israel now, by this point late in Second Samuel, is in his 60s. His death will be recorded in the early chapters of First Kings, not in Second Samuel. But there are not a lot of adventures left for David, some. You might have thought, as I said, that the worst thing for the man would have been his son Absalom's rebellion. But that wasn't the only rebellion he ever faced. In First, Second Samuel 20 here, another man tried to take over the kingdom. His name was Sheba. He was not a son of David, and uh, he had to be put down. Good old Joab, who's the military man, helping David all the way through, sometimes helping him, sometimes working against him, uh, pursued this Sheba. You can read chapter 20, how the demand went to the city where Sheba was in a stronghold, and Joab sent up the demand to the people of the city and said, look, if you want your city walls to keep standing, give us Sheba's head. And somebody threw Sheba's head out over the wall. That was how he was dealt with rather summarily. Chapter 21 tells of a famine, another bad thing to experience. The end of 21 tells of renewed wars against the Philistines. They hadn't gone away. And you might recall when David was a young, vigorous man, of course, he defeated Goliath probably 40 years earlier, a Philistine. If you think that's the only giant David ever faced, check out uh, 21.16, where it says he faced a man with a strange name, Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants. And this time, David would have been killed if a general had not intervened and saved his life. And they reproved David and said, no more battles for you, king. We need you too much. By the way, little boys among us, uh, you know, there are certain things that fascinate little boys in the Bible. And I have to point out there was a nameless giant being fought there in 2120, a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Ponder that. Why does the Bible tell us that kind of interesting stuff? But it does. This strange man who was fighting against David. Well, we come to this chapter 22, which is a psalm. It's a song. And it is apparently a favorite, a 
standby of David, who was a composer and singer of songs throughout his whole life, as we know. He was a very prolific musician. I always marvel at reading, certainly in anything close to modern times, by that I mean the last several centuries, the most prolific hymn writer was probably Charles Wesley, I think, who wrote thousands of hymns. We know in our hymn book about 12 or 15 of them, I think. But imagine it, thousands of hymns. David wrote at least scores of them, and we have many of them, of course, in the book of Psalms. But this, too, is a hymn. It is a psalm. We're told here's a song that he sang or composed when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies in the hand of Saul. That may mean it was written early in his career and continued to be something that he sang and remembered and rehearsed, maybe even hummed to himself as he went into battle. There's a very interesting thing about this tune, which is singled out in this way for repetition here in Second Samuel 22, because it has a very unique characteristic about it that almost nothing else in the Bible has, and that is that this chapter... 2 Samuel 22, if you want to flip and prove it to yourself that I'm telling you the truth, go look at Psalm 18. This chapter is Psalm 18. This very song is reproduced here in the historical setting of 2 Samuel, and then it is almost word for word in Psalm 18, showing us that certainly this was prominent in David's mind and in his thoughts as the Lord Uh, gave us this double recording of it, it was of great importance. It seemed to be almost a theme song or a summation for David that he sung in praise to God for his God-centered and God-exalting faith. I call it David's Rock of Ages because the rock of God is certainly the theme of this hymn. And we're just looking at part of it today, not the entirety of its 50 verses. Any of you who are middle-aged or so older remember a big advertising theme that was around for quite a long time, actually, with the Prudential Life Insurance Company that had the Rock of Gibraltar as its company logo. And they would tell you in their ads that you, by buying their insurance, ought to own a piece of the rock. I always thought that was a a great and and very graphic, very uh, communicative piece of advertising because I would look at that rock of Gibraltar. What could be more solid and stable and unmovable? And if I bought this insurance, I would have solid, stable, unmovable protection on my life, hopefully. Well, David is singing about God as his rock of Gibraltar in this chapter, in this psalm. God is my rock. The Lord is my rock, he repeats, my fortress, my deliverer. Again, God is my rock in whom I take refuge. One commentator said in discussing David's life overall, he said the single most characteristic thing to know about David is not David. It's God. David believed in God, thought about God, prayed to God, sang about God, and did so constantly. And the largest part of David's existence, this commentator said, wasn't David at all. It was God. 
That's why we keep calling him the man after God's own heart. Even though he was very sinful, he did a lot of things wrong, made some very big, terrible mistakes. Yet his heart was God-tuned, and he constantly came back to God time and again. And look at the word pictures he stacks up here in opening this psalm. The words are like rock, fortress, deliverer, refuge, shield, stronghold. You certainly can't miss the emphasis. It's not subtle at all. Strength and security, as much as his human vocabulary can possibly summon up, is what he's trying to tell you about God. We opened our service today by singing Isaac Watts' hymn. I love that strong hymn where Watts wrote, Join all the glorious names of wisdom, love, and power that ever mortals knew or angels ever bore. You hear what he's saying? If you gather together all the angels and all the saints of Christian history, everybody who's ever praised God, who's ever had the the greatness of God on their tongue, gather them all together and get them to give him praise all at one time, he's saying that would be too poor an assembly, too poor a pouring forth of praise to match the greatness of God's worthiness. And David would certainly admit that. Any words that he would compose are too poor to match the divine grandeur, and yet he tries to speak of it as best he can. Think of the reasons why a rock would be an important symbol for somebody in David's situation, living in a basically desert, rather barren land. Think of all the the reasons why especially large rocks play an important role. David uh, certainly knew that there were times when the heat of his land was unbearable, and in the midday sun, you'd look for some kind of shade. One place you'd find it, certainly not just under a tree, but on the right side of a great rock. Isaiah 32 speaks of the shadow of a rock in a thirsty land, a place to hide from blistering heat. We also know that there were times, especially in David's younger years when he was a fugitive from Saul, where he was seeking shelter among rocks in caves. He had to hide, and he would go into dark caves at times. And then, too, you think of being able to climb up on a rock and get a view from a long distance and see where your enemy is or where your goal is that you're trying to go to at some time. And furthermore, Psalm 40 speaks of the value of walking on the firmness of rock when around you might be boggy or swampy ground and you need sure footing. So it's a multifaceted symbol, isn't it, to think of God being a rock in a dry and thirsty land. Many of you who have been to Israel will know what I'm speaking about, and if you've even seen some of the vivid pictures of the land of Christ, you know what I speak about when I speak of Masada. We would call it a butte if it was in the American West, a 700-foot-high mountain with almost vertical sides out there in the desert south of Jerusalem, which became an important place of refuge when the Romans made their final invasion and destroyed the Jews as a people in 73 A.D. And you can go there. Most trips to Israel do go. How many of you have ever been to Masada? I'm sure we've got people here. Sure. You go there and you go up a cable car. I always remember our group. We took a group from our church quite a few years ago. And uh, 
I don't remember who the lady was. If she's here, I don't want to embarrass her, but I won't, I can't even remember who she was, so hopefully she's not embarrassed. But one of our ladies looked up at that spidery uh, cable car going up. This thing held about 25 people, but it looked from a distance like a little toy going up to this 700-foot-high mountain. And she said, I'm not going up there. And we thought, well, you're either going up there with us or you're going to be down here by yourself, one or the other. So we, we had a, a cagey little scheme where we said, you get in the center of the car and we'll all stand around you. And you won't be right at the window. You won't, you won't have to look out the well. Somehow she made it. And she went up and back down again safely. But uh, I remember Masada so vividly. You look out and you see for miles. Herod knew what he was doing when he built a fortress up there that he thought would be his final place of defense. And I hear David here saying, God is my Masada, my massive stronghold in the desert where I can retreat and be safe. My rock, my fortress. He personalized it. David was a master at exalting God. And we need to pick up his example and do this deliberately in our lives. Here's a quote I came across from Martin Luther on this subject. Luther was talking about the benefit to Christians of them giving God praise. How does it benefit us when we praise God? Here's what Luther said. Quote, one cannot imagine what marvelous assistance praise to God becomes for any of us in a time of pressing danger. He said, as soon as you begin to praise God, the sense of the evil or obstacle you're facing begins to fade away, and the comfort and strength of your heart grows. And then he wrote, it's quite possible to pray only by dwelling on our own little dilemmas, never to savor God's own excellent sweetness. But we will get no deliverance from evil merely by dwelling in prayer on how alarmed we are or how many difficulties we have. We will gain deliverance, Luther said, and rise above it through the exercise of divine praise as we express our respect to God for his infinite goodness. And so he said, let a man endeavor to actively praise God, even if he has little heart to do it, for his spirit will soon enough kindle up into a blaze of enlightenment and confidence and peace. Luther had it right. Praise is something we do, not because we wake up in the morning and say, I feel like praising God today. I don't know how many days you wake up thinking that. More often, let's be honest, we wake up and say, I ought to start out praising God because I don't feel like it. I ought to kindle that blaze and let it grow into a bonfire to warm me with confidence and trust in my great God. Secondly, I want you to look at the the passage from verses 5 through 20 here and look at the way in which David says in so many words, God parted the heavens and came down to him. Now, at first he states his own helpless condition in verses 5 through 7. The waves of death were around me, cords of the grave coiled. He might have been talking about danger in battle, but he might just as well have been talking about some kind of political dilemma or something within his family. He certainly had messed up relations with his family and his sons and everything. What he was referring to doesn't really matter. He's saying, I was helpless to help myself. And he wasn't exaggerating. 
And he saw these kinds of things constantly. And he says here, in my distress, verse 7, I called to the Lord. The Hebrew experts, whom I have to consult because I am not one and I have to believe what they tell me, but they say there's a particularly strong verb here, I called out to God. It's such a strong verb that it could mean I shrieked, I screamed to God. David's not just saying I whispered a little prayer. I stood up and said, God, help me, for I am helpless. And God, he says, heard him. Time and again, he heard and saw dramatic responses. So then you have verses 8 through 16, which if you would read over them, you you might perhaps have sort of a skeptical mindset or cynical. You might say, well, look at what he's saying here. Everything is so exaggerated. How could he say that God did these things? The earth reeled. Smoke went from God's nostrils. He came down. He rode on the Uh, on a cherub and on the wings of the wind, and he sent out arrows, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. Well, wait a minute. David's a poet, and of course he's speaking in poetic language. He's using what we call metaphors, language words to exaggerate and try to paint a scene that was not a scene, of course, that he could record with a video camera, having literally seen it. That's not the point. The point is that David is saying here, God acts in response to his people looking to him and crying to him for help. And he acts like some kind of a warrior storm God. He comes in power and he changes things and he affects history in dramatic ways. God is a mover and a shaker. Now, let's remember, it's David writing this. And be reminded, David, as far as we know, never in his life saw a miracle actually occur. Moses did. You remember Moses saw the plagues of Egypt. Moses was used by God to command the opening of the Red Sea. Elijah saw miracles. Dead child brought back to life. There are many miracles even in the Old Testament as well as the New. But David didn't have miracles in his life. He's not writing here about physical miracles that he witnessed. He's writing about the dramatic power, strength, and responsiveness of the Most High God. And he says, my God hears me when I pray, and he responds to me and to all, and responds in such a way that history and the heavens and the earth are actually affected by these things. In other words, it's not special miracles I'm looking for, but it's God actively working in the providential events of human history, showing his almighty power in acts of deliverance. Notice verses 17 to 20. He sent from on high and took hold of me, and he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from a strong enemy, this God of great power, was active on behalf of his servant who called. Well, you have a right to say, okay, I'm not like David. I didn't go out against Goliath and slay the giant, or I didn't fight against an army four times as big as mine and see God beat everybody. I I haven't had those experiences. How does all that relate to me? Let me suggest to you that the responsiveness and the power of this great God 
pictured here in these verses in such dramatic terms could apply to the greatest thing that God did in response to the need of his people in all of history. And it was in the future yet from David, the grandest miracle, the greatest intervention that God ever did was certainly to come into this world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and to have his son go to the cross and rise again from the dead and ascend into heaven. And when you look at all of these things and you think about that describing God's response in Calvary, in Christ, the earth reeled and rocked, God bowed the heavens and came down, the foundations of the world were affected. It all fits. God, the great God of power, has responded to the need of man in this world in a way that shook the heaven and the earth and rescued his people from their strong enemy, exactly as David was writing about. This God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ remains the all-powerful God. He still saves. He still rescues. He still guides. He still does battle on our behalf. The unbeliever would say, don't tell me that stuff. I don't see God doing anything in our world. But what does faith allow us to do? It gives us a kind of fourth dimension sight to look behind the scenes at what is really going on in history so that we can understand that, wait a minute, behind the scenes, behind the curtains of the drama that's unfolding in our world in time and space, our God is working. And he may work slowly. He may work across many centuries rather than in a matter of days or something, but his providential working and interventions call for us to give him a shout of praise because he's still working. He's still accomplishing his purposes. His purposes are almighty, just as David wrote about them here. He is the rock of ages. He is the God who has not stopped working to deliver his people. Well, this theme here, this psalm, can be seen and understood as a song about Christ. I've been telling you that. John Calvin said everything in this particular chapter, this psalm, as he commented on it, agrees as well with Jesus as it does with David, who was Jesus' ancestor. David's Rock of Ages theme song was a prophecy of what God would do for his son, pointing forward in time because Jesus too would be almost strangled in the cords of death, but he turned to his father. He shouted in distress, Father, help me. And God responded with the wonderful resurrection to bring back his son and to change all of history. The lesson, I think, is to ask whether we can learn to use psalms like this or many of them to fill our mouths and our minds with praise to God who is still our rock, the rock of ages. Sometimes we almost have to force ourselves to do it. You know, we, if we think to pray at all, we, we go to God with what I always call our laundry list you know, let's tick off the list. I need this, God. I need a better job. I need better relations with my wife. I need to communicate with my kids. I need, I need, I need, I need. And that's where we start, and that's where we stop. David only got started in his. He didn't even get to the laundry list, did he? He spent this whole psalm uplifting God. And let me tell you, if your prayer began 
even if you have to do it in imitation, because we're not original psalmists the way David was, but we can imitate, we can read, we can pray David's words. And if your prayer begins as David's did here, you're going to pray a very different way to a different God. And your heart is slowly going to feel like a campfire is warming up and kindling and beginning to blaze as you see the greatness of God in a new way. They tell me that back in the 1930s in Russia, of course, Joe Stalin was in charge of everything. He was a brutal dictator, responsible, I think he's second or third on the list of all-time responsibilities for the deaths of other people. Joseph Stalin and his thugs ruled the entire Soviet countryside, and Stalin, before World War II at least, would travel back and forth across the Soviet Union, from Moscow and Leningrad all the way up to Siberia. And he would stop, and there would be towns and places where uh, the, the Communist Party would gather people together and say, well, come, the, you know, the great, our great leader is coming, and you need to come and hear him. And the word would be understood, if not made explicit to people, that when Stalin came, they had a responsibility, and that was to greet him with great enthusiasm. Everyone was to stand and applaud when Stalin came into the room to begin to speak. And it was just understood. If your name was the name taken down as the one who wasn't standing and wildly applauding, it might be the last time your name was heard about in that town as you got a one-way ticket to Siberia. So Joseph Stalin came and everybody applauded wildly, the great leader, hooray! What's that all about? That's simply to tell you that the power manipulations of men can coerce applause. But only the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ motivates deeply within the hearts and minds of people spontaneous, true, authentic, deep, lasting praise to God, our great rock. The living God of the Bible has millions of people singing to him every day, not just Sunday, calling him my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. And we adore this God not because someone twists our arm to do it, but because we cannot help but praise God, the true rock of all ages. Amen. Father. Give us more and more praise in our lives. Our lives are in need of praise. Thank you for the gift of the book of Psalms, among many other things we have in your word. May we use it like kindling to feed a hunger that needs praise. May we learn like David that you are at work and you are powerfully doing things. It may seem to us that we look at our politics and our nation and our land, and we say, nothing's happening. Where's God? We know you're working. We know your ends will be achieved. And so we thank you for being our deliverer, our God, our rock, in whom we take refuge. For Jesus' sake, amen.